Hi, I'm Antonia Blythe, and this is 20 Questions on Deadline. Joining me today is Alison Bree. Welcome, Alison. We got second place in my seventh grade lip sync contest for one of the songs on that album. The one that was like, you've already won me over. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. It's a very of all slow. The, all the options. In spite of me. Like, what did we do? It's so slow. <laughs> Don't forget to listen to 20 Questions on Deadline. Thank you again, Alison. Thank you. There's plenty to celebrate in March and ex- Craft Month with the perfect pizza at home class from Craftsy. And anytime is right to listen to iHeartRadio's iHeartCountry Radio. Discover more shows and movies for free. Welcome to the MLK Tapes, a production of iHeartRadio and Tenderfoot TV. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the podcast author or individuals participating in the podcast and do not represent those of iHeartMedia tenderfoot tv or their employees listener discretion is advised after several hours of questioning and cross-examining ray told him that there was no such person as raul and he knew there was no such person as raul he admitted that and told me that he had to invent invent raul because that's what huey wanted he suggested something that implied that I had more acuity than uh, Bradford Huey and Haynes. I asked him how he happened to pick the name Raoul. And he said that was the name of a operator of a body house that he had held up. And uh, he admitted there was no Raoul. He laughed at Haynes and Huey's having accepted Raoul's story. That was Percy Foreman, former attorney for James Earl Ray, telling the House Select Committee in 1978 that Ray had told him that the whole story about Raoul giving him money and moving him about the country was made up, and that Ray had done this because the writer Bradford Huey, who Ray had never met, had wanted him to do it. According to Foreman, the reason that Ray told him this, but had never told anyone else, was that he respected Foreman's intelligence, that he knew that Foreman would see through his lie about Raoul. And according to Foreman, they had a good laugh about it, of course, it may have been Foreman making up the story here, but if it were a lie on his part, it was a safe one to tell because at that time, no one had found the mysterious Raoul or even claimed to know of him. I called the Union Hall. I said, it's a matter of life and death. I said, I think these people are planning to kill Dr. King. The authorities were parade, oh, we found a gun that James Earl Ray bought in Birmingham that killed Dr. King. Except, it wasn't the gun that killed Dr. King. James Earl Ray was a pawn for the official story. From iHeartRadio and Tenderfoot TV. The plan was to get King to the city because they wanted it handled in Memphis where Daddy and them could handle it. And I have lived with it so long, my children, they they scared for me. The Lord told me to not to worry. I've been wanting to tell it all my life. I'm Bill Kleber, and this is The MLK Tapes.
As we heard in previous episodes, James Earl Ray escaped from prison in 1967, and a year later found himself in Memphis on the day King was killed. After he'd been captured, he told his attorneys and anyone else who would listen that he had met a man in Canada named Raoul, who had moved him about the country and gave him money in exchange for odd chores. But while most details in Ray's story proved to be true, for example, the restaurant where he worked or the woman with whom he had a brief affair, no one was able to find Raoul. Not a big surprise because Ray never knew Raoul's last name, where he lived, or even if Raoul was his real first name. And Raoul most likely didn't want to be found. The official explanation for how Ray financed his travels and the one embraced by the House Committee was that instead of getting money from the fictional Raoul, Ray robbed a bank or two, and that if he had any help, it came from his brothers, John and Jerry. So for 25 years, no one had come up with a good lead as to who the mysterious Raoul might be, if he had existed at all. But then, after seeing the 1993 mock trial on television, Roy and Glenda Grabo contacted John Billings and Ken Herman, who were investigators working with Bill Pepper and producer Jack Saltman on the HBO trial. We met with uh, Glenda Grabo and Roy Grabo. She first said, I mean, they, they're almost their opening statement was, we know a Raoul, but we don't know if it's the Raoul that you're looking for. And we uh, listened to her story about her early life in uh, Houston, Texas and uh, the stories of her meeting with this mysterious Raoul and, and, and after it was over, uh, when they left, I was convinced that she was uh, a government plant. That was my first view, is that uh, this is an incredible story and it's just, you know, the government may have sent somebody here to discredit us for the story and if we're going to go chasing this one, we're really going to be deep water because we're, we're tying over the Kennedy assassination. So I was very skeptical. After hearing Glenda's story, Herman and Billings brought it to Jack Saltman, with whom they had begun work on a proposed movie that would be about the murder of Dr. King. Saltman also found Glenda's story hard to believe, as he explained at the civil trial in 1999. She claimed that her friendship with Raoul had all taken place in Houston, and um, her story was so extraordinary that when I first heard it, I have to say that I was profoundly skeptical. Um, but yes, we did go to Houston. Um, there was only parts of the story that I could get corroboration on. The parts of the story that I could corroborate were all corroborated. If bits of the story turn out to be accurate, it leads you to lend more credibility to the rest of the story. So she gained in credence. Can I also just say one other thing? This lady, this lady is a very an educated lady. Uh, she left school when she's very young. Uh, she had a horrendous life of abuse when she was young, both by her father and uncle. By the time Bill Pepper had sat down with Glenda, 35 years had passed since she was first abused by members of her family. But it was still a hard story for her to tell. According to her husband Roy, the abuse of Glenda, much of it sexual, began when she was 11 or 12. When things became intolerable at home, Glenda went to live with her aunt and uncle. But things there became even worse. Late at night, Glenda's uncle would come into her room. What's bad is not my aunt knew that, but she didn't do nothing about it. Right. And I would babysit for her kids and everything. They would never want really to give me food. I'd, I'd feed the kids and, and everything, clean the table off, they'd make me throw it in the trash. Really? I mean, I, nothing to eat. 
It's hard to understand the withholding of food from a niece who was living with them. Perhaps the aunt allowed herself to believe that Glenda was somehow responsible for her husband's criminal conduct, and withholding food was revenge or an attempt to drive the girl away. Whatever it was, Glenda, at age 14, was in a horrific situation. But after school, she would walk past a particular gas station, and there would usually be this man just hanging around. Every day, and he'd be usually be sitting right over here, drinking a Coke or something. Right. Call me over there and talk to me and stuff. Give me potato chips and stuff. Keep me going anyway. <laughs> Conversation and potato chips were a big draw for Glenda, and she got to know this fellow who was called Dago. She thought he was about 30. He had dark hair and spoke with something like a Spanish accent. And he could never pronounce her name. He called her Olinda. Glenda never saw Dago pump gas at the station, but he always seemed to be there. Someone else who encountered Dago was Glenda's little brother, Royce. Here is what Royce remembers about Dago as portrayed by a voice actor. There was a small gas station by a store my sister and I would walk to, and he would see us go by and he would get in his car and follow us. He used to follow my sister and I around, you know, in his car. He was kind of a dark-complected guy. I guess he talked Spanish or some other, you know. That's why he kind of stood out to me. And I was kind of scared of him. But Glenda never had an unkind thing to say about Dago, during this time at least. She regarded him as a friend and saw him frequently that first year. But the next year, when Glenda was 15, she escaped her home life by marrying Roy Grabo. It wasn't a great trade. Roy was in prison a lot of the time, and when he was out, he often didn't come home at night. Here, going forward, are Roy and Glenda Grabo, as portrayed by voice actors. I just got to drinking. I wasn't holding the job too long, but she pretty well went where she wanted to go. I mean, I was doing what I wanted to do, I guess. <laughs> I did anyway. I stayed drunk pretty good. Glenda and Roy moved around a bit, but since Roy was hardly there and not bringing money home, Glenda, as Roy just said, went where she wanted to go. She found some men who would pay for her attentions, and that's how she kept her boat afloat. There was one older man, maybe 55 or 60, who was particularly fond of Glenda. His name was Amaro, though Glenda and others called him Armando. He would look out for her in small ways, and in return, she became his driver. Where would they go? Down to the Houston docks. What would they get there? Stolen guns. And Roy Grabo apparently knew and approved of Armando. He'd get her to run down to the waterfront and carry boxes. They'd have boxes coming off the ship or going on the ship. Some in the trunk and some in the back. There'd be certain ones of them, you know, a certain guard on the gate. I'd have a picture of the guard, a good one. You could see that, make sure that certain guard was there and they could drive right through. Producer Jack Saltman, who was investigating Glenda's story, described the arrangement this way. Well, Mrs. Grabo had told me that um, she had acted as a driver for Amaro and that she had driven down to the dockside in Houston. Uh, she'd been given photographs of the guards on the gates and any certain guards were on duty did she then drive in. And at the bottom of the gangplank of a certain designated ship, uh, there were wooden boxes which she subsequently discovered contained dissembled guns. According to Glenda, the boxes of guns would be brought to a rundown house in South Houston where they would be assembled. The house belonged to a man named Felix Torino. 
They'd take them over to Felix's, and I'd go sit in the living room, or else I'd go in the kitchen with Felix. Felix was always cooking. A bunch of them would sit around and put them together. They would snap them this and that. This was around 1975, and it was during this time that Glenda arrived at the house with Armando to find Dago, who she had only seen now and then in the intervening years. He was sitting there with the rest of the crew and acting like he was in charge. A bigger surprise was that Armando turned out to be Dago's uncle, and Dago's real name was Raul. Glenda's connection with the group continued to be Armando. He told Glenda that he and Raul had come from Portugal, which explained the accent that sounded Spanish. Then, while driving around with her one day, Armando told Glenda that Raul had been involved in the killing of Martin Luther King. This is Bill Pepper talking to Glenda in 1999. Was it Armando that first told you that he was involved, that Raul was involved in the in the King case? Armando told me, but I couldn't believe it. You know, it had to come from his own mouth, really, for me to believe it. What did Armando actually say to you? Do you recall? Armando told me, you know, bits and pieces, and Felix would too. Just to, you had to put it together. Yes. I was still young then, too. So. Sure. The bits and pieces that you were starting to put together were leading you to believe what? That he had involvement or that he was the actual killer? He was. He admitted it later. That he was the killer? He, he was trying to keep it from him what it was. He got mad at Amanda because he knew that Amanda told me. Glenda kept her car keys on a ring that also had a miniature viewfinder which displayed three portraits, John Kennedy, Bobby Kennedy, and Martin Luther King. One day, Armando and Glenda arrived at Torino's house, and the usual suspects were sitting around the table playing cards. This is Glenda's and Roy's account of what happened next, as portrayed by voice actors. Well, just me and Armando came in, and I had the viewfinder with me, had the car keys hooked into it, and threw my purse and the keys on the table, and one of them looked at it, and he threw it over to him. To Raul. Yeah, and then he looked through it and jumped backwards, and the chair hit the floor, and he started stomping on the ground. Uh, Just keep going. You're going to be okay. Tell him. Oh, I don't cuss or nothing. Well, don't worry about it. Just say SOB or whatever. He just said, I killed that SOB once. Do I have to do it again? I never understood him saying it that way, but that's the way they talk. Your tax refund belongs to you, not an identity thief. Over $6 billion in tax refunds were flagged by the IRS for possible identity theft in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. LifeLock monitors and alerts you to identity threats you may miss on your own, even if you're careful with your personal information. And if you do become the victim of tax-related identity fraud, LifeLock has U.S.-based restoration specialists ready to help solve your identity theft issues. Plus, all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package, meaning LifeLock will reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Let LifeLock help you protect your financial information so all you have to worry about is what to do with your tax refund. Go to LifeLock.com iHeart and save up to 25% your first year. That's 25% off at LifeLock.com iHeart. Identity theft protection starts here.
Hey, this is John Ridley. And this is Matt Carey, documentary editor at Deadline. And welcome to Talk Talk. John, we've got a hard-hitting episode today. A lot of controversy. Well, maybe we should put the word controversy in quotes in the documentary field about the nominees for Best Documentary Feature. We're going to get into that with some amazing panelists. You get a shot, but the individuals behind every one of those images, they're complicated and they are human. This has been Doc Talk. Thank you. Great Thank conversation. You. The boy that he had a fight with was a karate expert, and they got in a fight inside a bar over a topless dancer. My brother kind of had a girlfriend that was a topless dancer. At the Cheyenne Social Club. In 1978, Roy Grabo's younger brother got into a scrape. It involved alcohol, guns, and a girl. They had a fight inside, and the boy knew karate and all that stuff. Well, a friend of my brother's had a gun. He gave my brother a gun, and my brother ran him out. They broke the fight up inside. The owner of the club, he broke it up and run that boy off. That boy stayed outside. About an hour later, my brother went out, and he had something in his hand. They didn't know if it was a gun or what, but they said he had a gun. Anyway, this other boy gave my brother back the gun, and my brother shot him dead. And they got him for murder, and they gave him 80 years. Roy and Glenda both felt that Roy's brother had gotten a raw deal, and they decided to do what they could. This was still in 78, and they were living in Houston and had heard that when it came to fighting a murder charge, Percy Foreman, who was also in Houston, was the best there was. So they called Foreman and asked if he would handle the appeal. Here is Roy and Glenda. I called Percy Foreman, and he said he would handle it for $5,000. He wants that $5,000 right there before I leave and look at you. Roy and Glenda didn't have $5,000, so they put a mortgage on their house. And when they gave him the money, Percy Foreman did look at Roy and Glenda, but mostly at Glenda. At a subsequent meeting, Foreman started to pester her, asking Glenda if she would like to work for him. I went up there, but he got mad, sort of, because I wanted to paint houses. He wanted me to stay right there. He was going to move his office or something. He wanted me to get past the secretary and out of the office or something while they made their move. I don't understand what he was talking about then. By the time producer Jack Saltman got down to Texas and was looking into Glenda's story, Percy Foreman had died. But Michael DeGarren, Foreman's partner in the law firm, was still there. So Saltman took a shot and asked DeGarren if he had any recollection at all of Glenda Grabo. Turns out he did, as Jack Saltman describes. Mrs. Grabo had said that she had told me as part of her statement that her husband, Roy, Uh, His brother was on a murder charge and that she had been told that Percy Foreman was the top man uh, in the business and had gone along to uh, see him. Uh, She said that he had said he would charge her $5,000, but that she would give her $3,000 back if she went to work for him. She said, I paint houses. What is that going to be? What use is that going to be to an attorney? Uh, He said, well, I want you to do some filing. I gather the filing was of a more sexual nature, and uh, this was acknowledged by uh, Mr. DeGuerin, and that um, uh, that's really what she was asked to do. She never got the money. So according to Foreman's partner, Michael DeGuerin, Glenda did work of some kind for Foreman, but she never got the money she was promised. As we have seen before, not honoring his promises was Foreman's standard way of doing business. 
but he did give Glenda one thing. Mrs. Greenberg gave me, it was a cartoon of Percy Foreman, and he had inscribed it to her in his own handwriting. Saltman called it a cartoon, but what he meant to say was that it was a reproduction of a somewhat flattering line drawing of Foreman, on which he had written to Glenda, best wishes, Percy Foreman. You're invited to check it out on our website. Um, Michael DeGarrett, uh, now the senior partner of the company, confirmed that that was Percy Foreman's handwriting and that it was exactly the sort of thing that he did. So Glenda Grabo ended up spending time around Foreman's office, mostly cleaning and doing make-work filing jobs. Bill Pepper would ask Glenda if Foreman ever mentioned Ray or the King case. We didn't even know it was his lawyer. We had no idea. We'd seen things in his office, you know, little things that were about Ray, and we didn't pay much attention to it, and I didn't know he was Ray's lawyer. But at some point, when they were alone, Foreman felt the need to tell Glenda what an important man he was. He told her that he was the lawyer in the King case, the lawyer for the infamous James Earl Ray. Then he said something else. Something about that all white people is going to thank Ray someday for being sacrificed, for being the sacrifice for us. Pepper then asked Glenda what Foreman said about Ray. Something about his brother sold him up the river or something like. I don't understand what he's talking about, but I remember that part. Until this point, Glenda is to Foreman a plaything of no consequence because he doesn't know what she knows about Raul and what Raoul said he did, and what his uncle Amaro said he did. But then Glenda makes a mistake. She thinks because Foreman is a lawyer, and already involved in the case, an educated man of presumed good character, that he is someone she can talk to. I figured, well, I found somebody that knows something about this. I'm going to tell him about it, you know? But I went to the wrong person, I think. Glenda then told Percy Foreman about how she knew Raoul and how she thought he had been involved. I thought I was talking to somebody, you know, somebody with authority, just to talk about it. I had no idea he was this liar. I didn't know what was going on or nothing. I just just didn't know where to turn. So Glenda tells Foreman about Raoul. Foreman is surprised and deeply disturbed. Just a few months before, he testified before the House Select Committee and been caught in a number of outright lies about how he entered the case and what he did and didn't do for Ray, about hiring law students to do investigative work. And lying under oath to a congressional committee could have cost him his license. But since Foreman was on the Ray Did It Alone team, he got off with only a scolding, and nobody challenged him about his dubious story about Ray telling him, and only him, that Raul was a made-up guy. But now, suddenly, Foreman had, working in his very office, a woman who might blow his whole world apart. And this is where the story gets really weird. Because Percy Foreman, former attorney for James Earl Ray, appears to know the elusive Raoul, as Jack Saltman describes the situation. When she told Raoul, according to her story, when she told Raoul that she was working for Percy Foreman, uh, he apparently lost his temper and there were furious words between him and Percy Foreman. Foreman then uh, allegedly rang up Glenda Grabo and said, your life is in danger. There are no witnesses to this conversation, but apparently the two men exchanged heated words on the phone. Raul, we might guess, is furious that Foreman has for his own pleasure, taking Glenda on as part-time office help. And Foreman most likely is angry that Raul and his friends 
have told Glenda things that she should not know. The danger for each man is real, and it can be measured in words because the next time Foreman sees Glenda, he tells her that she must leave town or be killed because of what she knows. Maybe by telling her this, he was just trying to save her life. More likely, he has his own interests in mind. Perhaps he fears a violent encounter between Roy and Raoul or a botched murder attempt that drives Glenda to the police. Better to just have her leave if he can get her to go. You gotta get out of town or something. And then he said he talked to Raoul, but I don't know if he came up there or talked to him on the phone or what. He kind of sort of threatened me. He sort of put it like, you gotta get out of town or you ain't even gonna be here. From what Glenda could understand, Percy Foreman and Raoul seemed to know each other. Foreman was a criminal defense attorney. He might have represented Raoul or some of his cohorts when they got into trouble, because defending criminals is what Foreman did for a living. Knowing his way around and being on friendly speaking terms with local hoodlums was good business. Did Foreman know of Raoul before the King murder? That would be utterly outrageous, but he may have. He certainly seemed to know him or know of him after the murder. In any case, Glenda and Roy took the threat at face value and moved as fast as they could. But there was a house to sell, so it didn't happen right away. One day, Glenda was alone in her car. I just come back from Cal's and I hit the freeway. The wheel come off. And a semi-truck was right on my tail. I looked in my rearview mirror. I said, oh God, here I go. I knew I was dead right then. It just swerved out of the way, just in time. Pepper then asked if they thought that someone had loosened the lugs, and there was no doubt at all in Roy Gravo's mind. It had to be. It had to be. Roy and Glenda Grabo moved from Texas to Mississippi sometime in 1979, and they never heard from Percy Foreman again. But then, in 1993, they saw something on TV. It was called The Trial of James Earl Ray. Welcome to the Scene to Scene podcast. I am your host, Valerie Complex. Today, I am chatting with Ji Young Yu. Ji Young stars as co-lead in the six-part limited series, Expats. I think I learn a little bit with every character that I play. I think usually I play a character and it causes enough introspection that I learn something about myself. I honestly can't gush enough about Freaky Tales. I'm so excited to share it with more people. If you like what you hear, be sure to review, like, and subscribe to the Scene to Scene podcast. There's plenty to celebrate in March and ex- Craft Month with the perfect pizza at home class from Craftsy. And anytime is right to listen to iHeartRadio's iHeartCountry Radio. Discover more shows and movies for free. We are back with John Billings as he describes meeting Glenda and Roy Grabo because we are going to follow this story down another road. Billings, fellow investigator Ken Herman, 
and TV producer Jack Saltman all harbored big doubts about Glenda's story, but they decided to look into it. But where to start? We didn't know quite who to talk to, so uh, what we did was I have had some contacts in uh, Miami and New York. I've met a number of people who are quite influential, shall we say, in the underworld, whatever you want to call it. And uh, I had called back upon them for a little help, and they contacted a, uh, a bond company called Las Vegas Bond Company in Houston that was ran by a large black female that was about six feet two. They kept a machine gun on our desk. Interesting. Herman and Saltman flew to Houston and paid a visit to the Las Vegas Bond Company and the black woman with the machine gun. They told her who they were looking for, but she said that she had never heard of this guy, Raul. But she offered the names of two people who might have. One was a retired state judge and the other owned a string of movie theaters. So Herman and Saltman found the judge and sat down with him. He said he never met Raul, but he had heard of a guy by that name who had a gun-running operation on the Houston docks. Not a lot to go on, but it was something. Then there was the theater guy. They found him, and he said right away that he knew Glenda. Here's Billings. They asked him if he had any pictures of her, and he laughed. He said, I've got lots of pictures of Glenda. He said, I keep them under my bed. And he went and produced some young pictures, not risque-type pictures, but very young pictures of Glenda, very attractive girl. And uh, talked about his encounters with her, and yeah, she did. And yes, you know, he verified what she was saying about running this group of gun runners and mysterious people and using the theaters to meet in. And uh, all of it began to start adding up. But no one they talked to knew Raul's last name. Amaro, Raul's uncle, spent much more time with Glenda and Roy, and no one knew his last name either. But he had led on that he was a former seaman and he had some sort of maritime card and occasionally received payments of some kind. So Herman and Saltman paid a visit to the offices of the Maritime Union. They presented an unusual first name and wondered if someone would look through the files to see if there was a person in the union with that name. Usually the answer would have been no, they don't give out this kind of information. But Saltman said that it was a matter of utmost importance. They were making a movie. Jack uh, kind of bluffed him into, uh, whipped out his BBC credentials and uh, told him he was making a movie and uh, they gave him the information. So then we had Coelho, we had Robert Coelho. So we had the name. With the real last name and the help of a Memphis police sergeant, the team came to possess a copy of Raul Coelho's naturalization record. It said that Coelho was born in July of 1934 and that he had first come to the United States in 1961. He was naturalized in 1967. Saltman was elated. What we had also discovered, uh, that this same Raoul we had met, uh, having seen his naturalization papers, or not his papers, but his application, uh, we knew that he had been uh, working in an armament factory in Portugal, in Lisbon, the uh, capital of Portugal, prior to uh, seeking American naturalization. And I believe there was an FBI note on the papers the suggestion was known that he had been sending to several guns out of uh, Portugal uh, at this time. But then, the big prize. Well, we obtained uh, a photograph that I believe was the one on his naturalization papers. So that would have been... Um, 67. 67. Um, having obtained the immigration photograph, what we then did was uh, we got five other similar type photographs 
uh, and we made a spread uh, of six photographs, which I know was the sort of thing the police would do in this sort of situation. So once they had the official photo of Raul Coelho, Saltman thought to construct a six-photo lineup or display using photos of men of similar age and to use that display to see who else might recognize this man and what person more important to show it to than James Earl Ray. And as John Billings explains, he was visiting Ray quite often at that time. We discussed uh, how to show it to him and uh, we decided to go ahead and And then Ray said something unexpected. He said, I've seen this picture before. And I asked him, I said, what do you mean you've seen this picture before? You know, I was thinking, how can you see this picture before? And he said that during, uh, I believe it was the uh, House Assassinations Committee, that someone had mailed him with no return address a picture. And it was this picture. And it had a name on the back of it. And he couldn't remember the name. And I asked him, uh, we asked him, did after Billings reported what Ray had said, Saltman set up a meeting with April Ferguson, who along with Mark Lane had represented James Earl Ray during the House Committee hearings. He left the photo out on a table with other material. But when Ferguson passed by, she stopped and picked it up. She picked the photograph up and said, I saw this photograph in 1978. And I was absolutely astonished because he was a direct link of that particular photograph and that person. So it wasn't just any round, this was very specifically the round. And I said, um, what happened? And she said, well, there was a name written on the back of it. Uh, and they checked that out and it turned out to be a policeman and had no relevance to the photograph. And I said, well, did you pursue who the photograph was of? She'd been shown the photograph by, I think, House investigators who were uh, looking into the House Assassinations Committee, the investigation that was going on at that time. And she said she was shown the photograph by one of the investigators, and they had a copy of it in the office. And I said, did you pursue it? And she said, at that time, we had no money backing us at all. You know, James Earl Ray obviously was in no position to pay, and we just did not have the money to hire private investigators with all the information now discovered about Raul Coelho, it was easy enough to trace the man or someone using that identity to a home in Yonkers, New York. But was the man living there with his wife and daughter the same Raul who came over from Portugal in 1961? Was he the Dago that Glenda had known? Was he the Raul that Percy Foreman seemed to know? And most of all, was he the Raul who had led James Earl Ray into Memphis. There were a few attempts to answer these questions. One was simply to knock on his door and talk to the man. This is Jack Saltman. 
Some months later, I went round to his house in New York State and knocked on the door. Um, the door, if I can explain, was um, there was a wrought iron grill type door, and then there was a sort of mesh glass door, a glass door with a mesh on it. They could obviously see out, but all I could see was a sort of dark interior of the house with shapes. That's all I could see. It was apparently the wife who first came to the door, but she didn't open it. Instead, she threw at Saltman what he was pretty sure were curses in Portuguese. She was then replaced by someone he assumed was the daughter. She spoke in perfect English and asked him what he wanted and would he please go away. Saltman said that he was an English journalist and that he had heard certain allegations made about her father and he wanted to sit down with him and talk. She replied her father was indisposed. Then I said, would you have a look at this photograph and confirm to all worst this effect that this photograph is your father? And uh, she said something to the effect um, that anybody could get naturalization photograph. And if I could get that, then I could get all the other answers to what I was chasing anyway, not the bottom. Something to that effect. She left me no doubt at all that she had positively identified. I didn't show her the spread. I showed her an enlargement of that photograph. I'm asking you, you just yes. showed her yes. a single photograph. Yes. There was no point in asking her to pick out her father, because I don't believe that was her father. So Saltman left Raoul's house believing he had gotten a positive ID from Raoul's daughter by way of the photo he had shown her through the door. Not exactly conclusive, but Saltman had another idea. He gave Glenda Grabo Raoul's phone number and asked her to call him. She did, and according to phone records, she had a conversation of several minutes with Raoul. According to Glenda, Raoul seemed happy enough to hear from her as though nothing bad had ever happened between them. Roy Grabo was present during this phone call, and he testified at the civil trial that from what he heard, Glenda was speaking to someone she knew and who knew her. But when Glenda described the conversation to Bill Pepper, he wanted to know one thing. How did Raoul on the telephone pronounce her name? Glenda replied. Glenda. Olinda. They'll call me Olinda. rather than Glenda. Yeah. Linda's on As you may recall, Olinda was how Dago pronounced Glenda's name in Houston. At this point, it would appear that Pepper was well on his way to establishing that the Yonkers Raoul was the Houston Raoul that both Glenda and Percy Foreman knew, and the Raoul who Ray had identified by way of his photo. But how to prove it? How to put it all on record? At that time, Pepper was putting together the civil suit on behalf of Coretta Scott King and her family, so he decided to subpoena Raul Coelho to see if he could get him to testify under oath. But Coelho declined to appear, and he didn't have to because he lived in New York and this was a civil matter in Tennessee. The defenders of the Yonkers Raul say the whole thing was a case of mistaken identity. And according to his lawyers, Raul Coelho had documents which said he was working at a General Motors plant in Tarrytown, New York, from 1962 till 1992. In contrast, Glenda Grabo's story seems moth-eaten, filled with holes and sketchy people. But however sketchy, Glenda's story does have a trail. And by following the clues on that trail, Herman and Saltman discover Raul's last name, his naturalization papers, and then the photo that came with those papers, a photo that Roy and Glenda say is of the Raoul that they knew. 
And according to John Billings, it's the same photo that James Earl Ray picked out and then said that both he and his lawyer had seen it in 1978. And the Coelho family in Yonkers, to my knowledge, has never denied that the photo was genuine. So if the Yonkers Raoul has nothing at all to do with any of this, if it really is a case of mistaken identity, how is this photo floating around at the time of the House hearings in 1978? So is the Yonkers Raoul the same person as the Houston Raoul? Well, there is a good body of evidence that says that he is. But whether he is or not, there is something more important here, something that goes to the very heart of this case. It's the assertion that Percy Foreman knew the Houston Raoul and that he told Glenda Grabo that James Earl Ray was just a guy who had to be sacrificed. And more than that, Foreman told her that if she didn't want to be sacrificed herself, she needed to leave town because this Raoul had been in on the murder of Martin Luther King, and he was dangerous. And Foreman knew all this because he knew the guy. With Percy Foreman, the hits keep coming. Why did he force himself into this case? Who was he really working for? And those questions do have answers. Stay with us and find out what really went down when Martin Luther King was murdered. Next time on the MLK Tapes. It really kind of opened my eyes that there was more of a conspiracy than I thought there was. Paul reached inside his jacket and pulled out what looked like a wallet. He flipped it open, and all I could see were the letters FBI. Paul smiled at me and said, Don't worry. I'm your friend, not your enemy. He said everybody had to make a little money, even cops. I knew we had worked with local cops before, but I had never known of the feds being crooked. I got the feeling that there were some investigators who were involved in either the timing, the surveillance, maybe the planning. We're talking about them surfacing at the time when the trial was about to take place. They didn't want that civil trial. I have a client who has imparted some information to me that quite frankly could prove that James Earl Ray did not shoot Dr. King. Thanks for listening to the MLK Tapes, a production of iHeartRadio and Tenderfoot TV. This podcast is not specifically endorsed by the King family or the King estate. The MLK Tapes is written and hosted by Bill Claper. Matt Frederick and Alex Williams are executive producers on behalf of iHeartRadio, with producers Trevor Young and Ben Kiebrick. Donald Albright and Payne Lindsay are executive producers on behalf of Tenderfoot TV, with producers Jamie Albright and Meredith Stedman. Original music by Makeup and Vanity Set. Cover art by Mr. Soul 216, with photography by Artemis Jenkins. Special thanks to Owen Rosenbaum and Grace Royer at UTA, The Nord Group, Beck Media and Marketing, Envision Business Management, and Station 16. If you have questions, you can visit our website, themlktapes.com. We posted photos and videos related to the podcast on our social media accounts. You can check them out at the MLK Tapes. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio and Tenderfoot TV, Please visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Hi, I'm Antonio. 
Tonya Blythe and this is 20 Questions on Deadline. Joining me today is Alison Bree. Welcome, Alison. We got second place in my seventh grade lip sync contest for one of the songs on that album. The one that was like, you've already won me over. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. It's a very slow. all the options. In spite of me. Like, what did we do? It's so slow. (laughs) Don't forget to listen to 20 Questions on Deadline. Thank you again, Alison. Thank you. There's plenty to celebrate in March and Craft Month with the perfect pizza at home class from Craftsy. And anytime is right to listen to iHeartRadio's iHeartCountry Radio. Discover more shows and movies for free.